Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here today for our 23rd episode to talk about Charlie Kaufman, a really great filmmaker, full of ideas, great writer of dialogue, a great conceptualist, and he's directed a couple of cool movies. He's written a novel. His new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, is top of my Netflix recommendations. <laughs> Maybe it is for you as well. Sam, I think it's safe to say you're a fan as much as I am. Yeah, for sure. I think growing up, Charlie Kaufman was like the guy. Uh, the first double bill I saw in the cinema was Adaptation and Synecdoche, New York. A very real experience. Jesus, yeah. Where was that? Uh, at the place in Hammersmith. Riverside, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many moons ago now. But when I was younger, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was probably my favourite film. It was like a fucking you know, 16-year-old emo or something. Like, you sure. know, I loved it. Suffice to say, on a rewatch, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I'll get to it, but I think we both really loved it. So much, honestly. I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. Really blew me away. It, spoiler alert, it's my favourite film that he's worked on, I think, by quite, by quite some margin. But he's made a bunch of really interesting films. We both watched Human Nature for this podcast, which I'd been avoiding watching for about 20 years or whatever. For sure. Michel Gondry's first film, yeah. the director um, of Eternal Sunshine, who he collaborated with on that. Um, yeah, it's, that's like a crazy turn of the century, like, tracked. Uh, but loads more. Being John Malkovich is probably the most, maybe the most, like, famous one in a sort of indirect way. And that's like such a discreet pop cultural entity. Yeah. Uh, that's like sort of taken on a life of its own. Made $200 million at the box office. Everyone knows about being John Malkovich. And it was his debut film. Yeah, I guess he'd done. He'd been doing like TV writing before. Um, right. He worked on the Dana Carvey show, I think. <laughs> he didn't work on The Master of Disguise, though, sadly. Super interesting career, though. I guess these films are like quite spread out since like 1999 up until the present. There's not that many I think that's a part of the vibe that you get from Charlie Kaufman, though, is like so many of his characters are like struggling artists and he himself like struggles to complete films. Like he doesn't really consider Anomalisa to be like a Charlie Kaufman film in the same way. But that's a 12 year gap between Synecdoche, New York, which was a huge financial flop. And I'm thinking of ending things, even though I mean, again, it's mad to talk about box office too much on a Charlie Kaufman episode because it's clearly not the vibe Synecdoche, mm. um, New York is a lot of people's favourite film of all time. A couple of very influential critics and people I know as well. Yeah, on a rewatch for me, I just found it a staggering experience. Truly impressive film, but impressive as well. We'll get into that one properly as we go. I hadn't seen that one since I was 15, but I guess it's a market. Much like Christopher Nolan, these were like what you were saying, like kind of auto mm. in inverted commas like filmmaking that you can easily get like teenagers to watch or whatever and get involved with for sure for me charlie kaufman is a true artist though uh i i was hoping i'd finish it by the time we recorded this episode but i haven't i'm reading his debut novel ant kind which came out this year very recently a couple of months ago it's a chunky bastard of a book um it's fascinating though uh it's or it's a hilarious book so far. Yeah. Um, it's about like a very standard like 
Kaufman-esque protagonist who's like extremely neurotic, basically analog. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, basically. You're going to hear that word a lot today. An analog of himself. Um, But it's one of the funniest books I've read in my life. It's fantastic, man. I'm desperate to read it, to be honest. All the bits that you or Ollie have like isolated to me or just like read out. I'm just like, I can't believe what I'm reading or whatever. Um, It's about a film critic. Yeah. Or uh, a film theorist. Yeah. Uh, B. Rosenberger. Rosenberg, who right. goes by a sort of gender neutral name, even though they're like very, you know, they are like a man. Oh, it was. Like, they use very, thon. Like, yeah, yeah. There, there are loads of discussions of like thon or like thonness um, as like a gender neutral uh, pronoun. Oh. Yeah, but there's all these like uh, racial gender neuroses that like come into mm. it. The characters like has a complicated relationship with their Jewishness. Um, it's and you know the film sort of crit or like pseudo film crit in there is hilarious. The way like all these like fake monograph titles. I think this film has brought a lot of people to William Greaves's Phil's cousin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what the fuck is it called? Symbio Symbio Psychotaxiplasm. Yeah. Fucking awesome guys. You should really really check it out. Yeah. That's a film about the making of a film um, of just recording people on a date in Central Park. But um, much in like a Charlie Kaufman-esque way, I guess. All about that like reconstruction and like reinterpretation and like all these like hermeneutics in film. Uh, And that's going to be something we come back to throughout this discussion, I think, because it's all these films are so reflexive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in adaptation, he's a character. In Synecdoche, New York... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is Charlie Kaufman basically is like a or there there are element there are elements of his you know I would say and Roger Ebert would agree with me that he's everyone <laughs> it's like he's every human so being not everyone not. <laughs> But it's a film about the human condition. Yeah, for sure. I'm really interested in Ant Kind. I need to read it just for the fact that it's a 700 page book that's littered with like actual film criticism or like especially like refracted through a character. So it's not even like what Charlie Kaufman, who famously in interviews like is always slewing all kinds of films in the famous like Simon Mayo interview, like he really goes in against uh, Inside Out, the film that beat Anomalisa to the best animated picture Oscar that year. But in this film, I guess, you know, any kind of, like, neurotic, like, dense piece of sort of metafiction that's loaded with information in the 21st century gets compared to, like, a few different things. I think Ulysses is, like, a really key thing for Synecdoche, New York. I have to say Thomas Finch. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say David Foster Wallace, who will come up in this discussion sure. as well, because he's a sort of secondary character in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. But, I mean, there's loads of imaginary film criticism in Infinite Jest um, and like fake filmographies and stuff like that. But the fact that Kaufman, I mean, he's really on, you know, beast mode to be like just talking about all his contemporaries, like uh, what they the, the character thinks stranger than fiction, like famously like a film that just like is like Kaufman light. The character like loves it or whatever, right? And loves like, or he hates it. In what one? In Ant Kind. There's like passages oh, where it's like celebrating Stranger Than Fiction and like the guy loves like Wes Anderson or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't remember them talking about Stranger Than Fiction in it. Which, yeah, as you say, is like a very like, you know, bargain basement version of um, 
these sorts of films, I guess. I guess it's sort of like Punch Drunk Love or, or something as well. Yeah, but that film's awesome. I think like it is like a sort of Kaufman style exercise or whatever. He sort of invented a genre, you know, in a way for this like height. And it's quite a uniquely American genre as mm. well, I would say, what he's doing. Especially the fact that he's, you know, operating with really high budgets and like huge scale for all, pretty much all of these films. Yeah, big sort of finance back in, you know, they, I guess big they brain. have like a... <laughs> Big actors as well. Like, the casts of all the films we're going to talk about are like, fucking hell. Like. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So much to celebrate. Can't wait to get into There's it. a little bit to critique as well. Well, for sure. I'd, <laughs> having watched everything he worked on this week, mm. I'm a bigger fan than ever, to be honest. Way bigger than 15 or 16-year-old Emmett was when I first saw being John Malkovich and, you know, mm. Senate to Keep New York. But do you think being John Malkovich was the first one you, mm. you saw? No, I think Eternal Sunshine was almost certainly mm. the first one I saw. But that film, it's just one of those ones that's just going to get better and better yeah. for me every time I come across it, I think. Should we just go straight in talking about Eternal Sunshine now? Yeah, I'm so down. I'm so down. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, taken from the Pope Alexander <laughs> quote. Um, it's a high-concept sci-fi romance film. I mean, presumably most people listening will have seen The Town Sunshine. Sure. It's, you know, a extremely popular film. You just mentioned casting. You know, for me, this is just genius. Jim Carrey, it's 2004 when this came out. Jim Carrey in the lead role. Straight like after of, Bruce Almighty. <laughs> as like a mopey, like sort of... Kaufman-esque protagonist. Yeah. I guess less You so. don't really know what he does. I guess he's like an artist, like a yeah. crumb-style artist, but yeah. his occupation is not a part of the film which it kind of is for like all the other ones are about work in like a really specific mm. way more but, more abstract and like the you know it's like purely about like the romantic life mm. uh in this film and then yeah his counterpart in it is kate winslet yeah um who i don't really know what she was saying in 2004 but i guess at the time probably winning Oscars, like man. probably still people primarily thought of her in like titanic mm -hmm. at that point um as like you know safe like, to say yeah yeah and you know i guess she plays like a sort of manic pixie dream girl sort, sort of yeah like, sort of thing maybe before that was articulated and but it probably like solidified that as well i guess it's a little bit before garden state but it is a chief example of this like pretty problematic tendency especially in like independent american like alt comedy thing is like you know the layers of misogyny beneath mm. that or whatever i mean she does have a speech in the film yeah where She's like, oh, all these men just want me to, like, save their lives and, like, you know, da-da-da. I think there's a lot of dialogue throughout the film that mm. engages with the tropes and, like, sort of ironizes it while still making it, you know, it is dramatic, though, but I guess it still makes it, like, believable to a certain extent. But, it, okay, basically it's about a relationship that we see playing backwards um, as uh, there's this, like, tech company that, like, erases memories. So... Uh, Jim Carrey's characters like trying to grasp onto the memories as they're like slipping away mm. and that just is the background for so many mind-bending visuals yeah uh, yeah I mean for a, a kind of minor film in a way that there's a few things about it that make it feel like kind of a minor work even though it was a huge success like lauded by pretty much everyone it won Charlie Kaufman an Oscar for best screenplay but yeah there's the set design and the production design in this film is unbelievable. I think like some of the best I've ever seen. 
the way that people are walking, you know, it's so much better than Christopher Nolan for this shit. The way people are like walking it from memories into like other rooms and like the way they... These like give- disjunctures, like mental disjunctures and like ways of framing and conceptualizing memory and like the decay of memory and trying to grasp onto memories. Like I can't, you know, it's, so- it's like so much better than tenor or inception. Sure. And it's so much better than Black Mirror as well because there's this real homespun, you know, it's not... It takes place in like a suburb, like an extremely suburban part of New York, like was it Rockaway Station or whatever. It's not even in New York City. It's on Long Island, but Mm-mm. everything kind of takes place on one street. I guess that's because of it's like a really set bound film, like in a true Hollywood sense. But there's, you know, the questions of scale are so interesting in this film. Um, the company, uh, what are they called? Lacuna. Lacuna. As a someone who's studied manuscripts or whatever you know that's like a gap in a like a missing word where they meant to fill it in later you know um but they're not like they just run out of like the first floor of a building or whatever they're not some like super scary like tech giant they're like a startup like there's like three people who work for this company i think part of the charm of that is that like it makes it seem like it's like a very casual techno future Mm -hmm. where this is like narratively it's high concept but in the world of the film it's just like you know it's like the dentist or something um it's just like that's the world we live in where like you can like interface with uh the human body through like technology in like a very like normalized way the cast the rest of the cast the supporting cast is crazy apart from david cross who's always got a joint in his mouth in this film hilarious (laughs) but yeah the the four people who work for lacuna uh tom wilkinson is the boss Kirsten Dunst is like the secretary and then there's a pair of sort of like technicians or whatever like subordinate practitioners played by Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood straight after Lord of the Rings as like incredible piece of casting as like I hate this little bastard you know like more than anyone in any Charlie Kaufman film. He plays the worst sort of like sycophant like he like steals the memories Mm. to try and court the character who's um kate winslet's character whose memory he's erased like and you know like all good sci-fi it raises like ethical questions in like a you know like a fun and like interesting way as as well as a genre exercise it succeeds on so many levels it's maybe my favorite romance film it's one of my favorite sci-fi films yeah it has some like horror sequences that are truly like nightmarish scariest shit i can imagine if you ask me to imagine a scary scene in a film it's not going to be like sore or some shit. It's when they're in in the dreams and they're like sort of slipping away from intelligibility and like the faces are like distorted. They all sound like guitars in it with the tremolo effect when they're talking. Like. So, so mad. Uh, this is one of two collaborations with uh, the French director Michel Gondry, a music video director to start out and like ads and shit, I guess. Loads of ads. I mean, he did the the best white stripes videos some of the best music yeah. videos hardest button to button fell in love with the girl the lego one denial twist is sick he did the daft punk around the world video it's cool he's yeah. still making cool videos as well oh he did just do a video for idols for this song the village <laughs> idols fucking suck i'm definitely team sleaford mods i think it's fair <laughs> to say at phil graves we're you know 
sleeper mods have a lot of integrity idols fuck off i'm not gonna listen to this album i don't like their other shit they just rip <laughs> off mccluskey without the sense of humor right. like i fucking hate idols actually you know idols are to future the left what like stranger than fiction is to charlie Cobb. <laughs> all right i'm gonna leave, i'm gonna leave it but they fucking suck i'm sure if you're yeah. listening you know what i'm talking about but uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Michelle, also- Michelle Gondry's film career is like pretty spotty. Be kind, rewind. I have a soft spot for as uh, I guess when I used to listen to most Def a lot more sure. and Tenacious D a lot more. Sure. Uh, so the Jack Black most Def. Uh, it's Sweden star- starring as like sort of sweet video store clerks who try and uh, reproduce films after their shop burns. In a sort really of Greg Turkington, yeah. Victorville film or <laughs> yeah. archive. It's extremely tweet. I guess all these films have I need like... to watch that again, actually, man. Yeah, I saw it not so long ago, and it, I think it holds up. It's good. Because all these films I saw in the cinema when I was like 13, 14, like kind of being, having my mind blown by the concept. <laughs> and so to return to them now, like half my life later, I'm like, mm. they usually like still tick all the boxes for me, I feel. Especially... Yeah. Freddie got fingered? Fire. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> Insane. Um... But I think I think Gondry brings a lot in terms of the aesthetic sensibilities to this mm. film, um, especially that like dreamness to mise en scène, uh, the sets, the production design. I think it was like a pretty pure collaboration. There's a first draft mm. I read of this that has a far more harrowing um, framing device where Kirsten Dunst's character, who plays the secretary at the the memory erasure company she's like an old woman at the beginning at the end like everyone's been like going through this like sisyphian process of you know like they get addicted to like, it yeah oh. and then like everyone dies and it's like oh. oh i'd say the end of this film is like it's such a beautiful film in terms of like italy i guess it, kaufman is like a i'd say like quite a cynical uh voice sure. but but this leaves like on a sort of hopeful note and yeah. it's just some beautiful film and that 17 minute <laughs> pre-credit sequence is so beautiful as well you know is it that long it's just a late title drop yeah my friend. it certainly is and i would say that i noticed a lot of the other ones are like way more swift um and maybe that's because you know synecdoche new york but though, you go into all these he, films he aware don't... that charlie kaufman is the screenwriter or whatever that's yeah, inescapable sure. apart from maybe kung fu yeah. panda 2 <laughs> which we didn't watch for the pod but we'll maybe patreon but this film is so aware of like the casting you know there's that sequence with this whole like regression into childhood which takes Mm. place over the course of the film so you're seeing him in like a childish role like he would play in you know whatever dumb and dumber as he even gets the dumb and dumber haircut for Mm. one scene just after he's like you know they got that crazy set where he's standing under the table and like yeah the perspective's all cool and winslet is like playing his mom's friend or whatever his like sexual awakening oh god the whole thing is so fucking mad but like i don't know for jim carrey this is our 23rd episode so maybe it's worth uh you know number 23 yeah man you know, <laughs> another <laughs> another paranoia film mm. but not as good as this he really lost the source after this as well i think but you know it's classic like you got to peak somewhere right <laughs> this is winslet the same she absolutely kills it in this film like yeah a pair of sensational performances. And yeah, just to reiterate, the supporting characters are all perfectly cast and all bring, you know, I guess because of the plot where the characters, you know, are meant to be vulnerable because they're, you know, or we can assume some sort of like layers of like mm. history that are like they're not even aware of, but like might like factor in, you know, Kirsten Dunn's character 
that's a amazing performance. For sure. The you know the vulnerability is just or like you know she's meant to be enamoured with the boss and had like an affair with him in the past and then had her memory wiped and then she's still working for them but then you know this sort of unravels as it goes on and that plays like just so believably uh mark ruffalo's like it seemed like sort of like i think all the, both is, both him and elijah were like really like pathetic like losery characters but like um spotlight and dark waters it is a mark ruffalo finding things out movie you know, <laughs> yeah. at its core you know? so if you like yeah. those movies it's worth checking out <laughs> dad um, <laughs> it is worth mentioning i think that the setting of eternal sunshine is largely in like the hamptons most famously depicted probably in gray gardens the extremely <laughs> scary documentary i think i've only seen the documentary now sure. version sure. <laughs> but um extremely bougie part of the world probably one of the most alienating places i've ever been to real joanna hogg style settings you know at the party that joel and clementine meet at on the beach is like i don't know it's the one of you know some decadent shit extremely even though they just it's just a bare bones like cold beach or whatever with and you know it's a beautiful place like looks incredible in this film but it is worth mentioning like in the only kaufman film where like work doesn't really figure the milieu of this film is like deceptively you know i'm sure the lacuna treatment would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars or whatever you know they're not like i guess my one sort of rebuttal to that is that them going to uh like montauk and going to this like house that they sort of break into yeah yeah yeah. that's some aspirational shit you know sure she's a bookseller he is i guess vocationally nondescript at the beginning he like calls his boss and is like (coughs) i'm not gonna come in today like when he's like on a train platform doing these like robert crumb style (laughs) um but uh, yeah, I guess it's yeah. sort of ambiguous, but yeah, I, I guess I see where you're coming from as well. Like, it's pretty easy to be maybe alienated by that sort of thing. Mm, not alienated, because I have literally been there, and I don't think it would be fair yeah. for me to say that it's... I think they're alienated by it. Sure. As characters, which I think is maybe what I'm saying. Kaufman is an extremely, like, coastal filmmaker though in terms of his depiction of america like he is like intelligentsia or whatever a hundred a hundred percent you know adaptation takes place in la most of the things take place in new york and anomalisa is set in like cincinnati but like it's like a hellscape you know i would say there's one good like dinner party scene i think it's an adaptation that's like a very good satire of that sort of like extremely pretentious like offensive familiar like you know, oh, all the home. New Yorker writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a film about love and relationships and a film that's like steeped in cynicism, it had, the heart of it is so... Yeah, it's, it's so sweet. It's so sweet, you know, because it's love is like a transcendental force even beyond like science or whatever. Like the way these people keep on falling back in love, spoiler alert, or like it's... Just, oh. Again, I'm so glad that the narrative plays out the way it does as opposed to... These like drafts are way darker, mm. and obviously they met like a very good compromise. Coffin was like writing it as they were working; they were like sort of like crafting it on the spot. Uh-huh. Like, um, and I'm glad it came to the resolution it it did. Would you say that's like a 
he's influenced by the lessons he learned from uh the work of robert mckee to like impose an artificial story type onto a breathtakingly original idea no i don't i don't think the ends a cop out at all like no. i think it's actually like a very satisfying compromise it doesn't cheap you know by like turning away from like a negative ending like it doesn't cheapen it there's and there's still like mystery in it as well which sure is like part of the essence of the film i think obviously very influenced by like la jetée by chris marker for example um, but that's a way more cerebral exercise. Mm. This film, like, I've wanted to cry this whole discussion talking about <laughs> it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's super emotional, man. I think the music contributes a lot to that. John Bryan's soundtrack and, you know, Beck's tune on it, ev- the cover of the everyone's, yeah, yeah. everyone's Gotta Learn Sometime. The synthesis, I guess the it's synthesis hitting. of, like, image and music is just so perfect in this film. Um Oh, super nostalgic as well. I think that's like one of the key, like sort of yeah key things. But I mean, I think music's so important to the general uh, like sort of aura of these Coffin films. And we'll talk more about um, mm-hmm. the composers that he's worked with as we go. I guess it's worth noting at this point, if I don't manage later, that John Bryan also did the soundtrack for Synecdoche, New York, yes. which is cool. Less iconic for me than the Eternal Sunshine one, which is just chock full of like beautiful motifs. Evocative ass music. Yeah. Um Yeah, and there's only a few pieces that keep on coming up and up again in sort of like decayed forms in Eternal Sunshine, mm. which I love. Like they do something to the production every time. I love the J Electronica record as well, mm. um, where he's sampling all that because the film the the music does have this like emotional weight to it tells the story you know it's instrumental but like it, it is instrumental is like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> in the story of the film yeah god i loved it so much on rewatching. yeah but there are so many more astonishing films to talk about we'll get to it <laughs> yeah you watched uh confessions of a dangerous mind didn't you i yeah. just didn't have time that was rubbish man yeah um i'm sure that like charlie kaufman I mean, the premise is fascinating. Um, maybe the fact that it's about... Well, it's not... Is He made it straight after adaptation, and it's also about a real-life character. I guess he wrote it simultaneously. It could have been like a blacklist script or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and it's an adaptation of Chuck Barris, the host of The Gong Show, the inventor of the dating game. Um, and it's his memoirs. He sounds like a very deranged guy. Um, he talks about his life like as an assassin for the CIA. This film was directed by George Clooney. Had very little interesting dialogue. Bit more of like a studio job, I guess. Definitely. Felt ve- it felt very similar to Ocean's Eleven and like Coen Brothers or whatever, which I guess as a George Clooney... I mean, George Clooney went on to direct some pretty interesting films. Good Night and Good Luck is fantastic, I think. What's that one about? It's a film about Edward R. Morrow, who was like the... He was like a newsreader who was like um, McCarthy or whatever. He was like... It's a really, really cool. good movie, man. Black and white. Uh Cool. Unremembered film, but worth checking out if you're interested in the blacklist and stuff like that. But Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, cool cast. You got Julia Roberts, like you got, you know, Drew Barrymore. Everyone having fun with like glitzy. I mean, it's very similar to like Goodfellas or like a Scorsese picture. You know, like it sounds like there's. I think for Kaufman, like we can look at him as like a auteur, like a very specific voice with like thematic preoccupations. Certainly, and I guess I get the impression that those aren't really carried over to Confessions of. There's still this. There's still this paranoia element where like they could have made a lot more out of it, of this thing where like 
no one will accept the fact that he says that he was a assassin for the CIA and you get these sort of like digitally shot like murder execution sequences or whatever but he's a deranged guy it opens in a very similar way to Mikey and Nikki where he's just like holed up in a hotel room like drinking whiskey like doesn't want to talk to anyone um but I think maybe in like earlier drafts Kaufman might have like done a lot more with the paranoia which is such a huge element of his work from the very start but Confessions of a Dangerous Mind yeah just not that much interesting stuff going on as you mentioned we both watched Human Nature another early Kaufman screenplay mm-hmm. and his first collaboration with Michel Gondry Gondry's first film interesting film I guess who, what's his name? Reese Evans. Reese Evans, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he plays like a sort of feral man who's found by Tim Robbins' uh, sort of scientist, mm-hmm. uh, like lab guy who runs experiments on mice and stuff like that. Patricia Arquette plays another character who like sort of uh, straddles this threshold between the natural world and like civilization. Like she has like a sort of hair condition and you know wants to embrace like nature and like she participates in that sort of dialectic. And yeah, it's just like a sort of fast then about that, about I guess the sort of <laughs> it was very like A level psychology, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I guess it's a criticism that people want to level against all works of Charlie Coffin, but this one specifically is very straightforward and what he's trying to discuss, you know, mm. all psychology. Like, I don't know. It's some stupid comedy film, like, more so than any of the other ones, I think, to me. Um, it's a cross between George of the Jungle and American Pie or whatever. At a time when, like, people were, like, the interest in, like, screwball, especially in this, like, American indie circle, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Intolerable Cruelty were coming out. Uh, Preston Sturges, Howard Hawks were, like, their influence like, really rediscovered, especially in a non-studio setting which is really interesting. Mm. Um, and this does feel like, a, you know, you could compare Tim Robbins' character very directly to Cary Grant's character in Bringing Up Baby, for example. But they, there's no haze code anymore, so you can just have characters masturbating on screen, basically. Okay. Yeah, like, uh, furries will be <laughs> thrilled by certain sequences. <laughs> um, it's all love. It's all love on film grades, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> but... It's a strange film and, you know, it does have a certain... I guess all of Kaufman's films can be described as having a sort of masturbatory logic. But this film makes manifest that, you know, sort of governing theme it's an in essential... a very direct way. Yeah, it's a part of the storyline. It's like the crux point of the film is like, is this guy going to masturbate in public? Yeah, how effective will the electroshock therapy be? Yeah, because it's like a sort of Pygmalion, like he's trying to like, you know, and he does... You know, properize him where he's like talking in full yeah. sentences. Ladies in a ma- and gentlemen, in and a matter I can't of weeks. Stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a bit Moses, supposes, isn't it? But those sequences, there's like one or two like Gondry-esque flourishes or like cool design. One of them would be those like cards by which he learns English in a matter of seemingly weeks. Mm. And then there's also this like cool return to nature sequence. Um, which which does look a lot like the film The Science of Sleep that Gondry made a few years later. Yeah, I never I never watched that one. I, yeah, I think Human Nature has cherry shop classic. Yeah, yeah, the big time. 
yeah, beyond like very turn of the century, both themes and aesthetics, like you could definitely mm. describe this as quite a music video. You know, the sort of even like the sort of frame rate at times seems like yeah, it's I guess a very specific aesthetic. I thought there were some like cute like French touches, you know, but at the same time, it's I guess yeah, the diagram with this and American Pie and I don't know, it's gross out in horse or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be very interesting. It is a gross out <laughs> film or whatever, as well as yeah, depicting the id. Um, yeah. which I guess is what it's all yeah. about. I guess know. it shows that conflict in an interesting way because um, Patricia Arquette's character, you know, all the characters are basically shown to be self-serving and it does subvert expectations of, uh, you know, who the protagonist is. Yes. Um, She's and... the only one who has an actual friendship with anyone. Mm-hmm. And she has, like, the Rosie Perez character who, like, they actually have a conversation and stuff like that, even though she just does her, like, skin removal treatment or whatever peter dinklage kills it in this film man yeah for sure i guess it is really is a bit part you basically see a flash of him at the beginning and then he turns up like much later basically at the end of the film he starts out as a circus performer uh, or whatever with the patricia roquette character yeah peak and yeah they have a conversation about the sort of correct terminology for dwarfs you know it's that sort of film like as i'm sure most peter dinklage films from this era do as well have very similar sequences but he's going around quoting like oh who's he quoting someone as well as nietzsche someone good oh mauro the french cultural minister like not actually that cool but sorry i'm gonna forget if i don't say it but in eternal sunshine all the characters called nietzsche nietzsche is that an american thing i think it's an american American thing thing. happens in Uh. uh Roland Emmerich's The Day After Tomorrow as well, I feel. Maybe it's just an American thing. An extremely Nietzschean film. Um. <laughs> extremely Synecdoche, New York, yes. <laughs> Human Nature. I think we're pretty much dumb. Is, is the worst film we're going to talk about today, I think. I think it's still interesting to talk about because, you know, there are themes in terms of exploring like the psyche, yes. um, people's relationships to their environment and to other people, which I think he explores in interesting and different ways throughout all these, all these films. Yeah, it's an essential part of the canon as a piece of auteur. It seems like such a fundamental thing to say, but you can, you know, there are screenwriters for whom that is not a primary concern, you sure. know. Charlie Kaufman's other director collaborator in the early part of his film career, Mr. Spike Jones, big legend. I would say he explored these themes from human nature a lot more successfully in his Jackass work. Jackass 4 coming this year. Yeah. Really looking forward to it. Oh, hotly anticipated. That is the logical extension of that kind yeah. of cinema, though, I think. For sure. You got a wee man, you got, you know. The dialectic of a firework coming out of your ass. Sure. Can you believe the same man directed <laughs> Jackass 3D or like Jackass Bad Grandpa and Adaptation? Yeah, I mean, that's a crazy thing to consider, really. It's not just Adaptation, though, because I, I guess we need to treat being John Malkovich first, because in like the sort of meta 
narrative framework of these films, yeah. being John Malkovich comes first, both in our world and the film. Sure, world. and like Eternal Sunshine, it visualises the trip inside someone's subconscious in a real creative way. And like Human Nature, it features an ape <laughs> as an essential part of the film, as an essential yeah, part sure. of the plot of the film. Very sympathetic. The, the hero of the film. <laughs> Again, if we're going to talk about casting, I guess uh, we've been watching it for like half an hour when Sham was like, oh, is that Cameron Diaz? Like, did exactly the yeah. same thing. Yeah. John Cusack as like the sort of pathetic puppeteer um, who finds a portal into the mind of John Malkovich. Great performance. All the performances are crazy. As you said, the scenario is like, I guess this is like basically what he got famous off the back of yeah. or like what establishes reputation as like a scenarist for like these like cool films basically it's a crazy film you know it is unbelievable um, i guess it came out in 1999 and it really captured people's imagination and kind of changed a lot of people's perception on what a mainstream film could be especially with this sort of stunt casting john malkovich i would say also gives a pretty good performance in this film yeah um, but it is a film about celebrity that was made in 1999 and like one of the most jokes things about it to me is that no one can actually... John Malkovich is meeting all these people, like taxi drivers, and they're like, oh, like, you were great. What film were you great in? Like, I don't even know or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. John Malkovich is, like, largely a Shakespearean actor. Um, I guess he's most renowned over here for his performance after this in Johnny English. Probably his <laughs> most recognisable performance to UK eyes or of Mice and Men, where they make yeah. jokes... Um, using the R word that we're not going to use because we're not the Red Scare podcast. I yeah. think we have in the past, but yeah. Um. <laughs> but yeah, very interesting. And it's like a galaxy brain film, you know. Again, with cool sets. Yeah, I think it's a really legendary production, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, a very extremely muted palette. Um, yeah. That's like an extension. I, You know, it's an extension of the character's psyches in a very direct way. I think it uses costume really well to indicate these things as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good... Prosthetics. <laughs> yeah. All the, yeah. All the stand-ins. Yeah, I think the colour palette and the sort of visual displeasure that you get throughout this film mm. was kind of the the one stumbling block for me as well. I think Spike Jones is a really good director and like there's a certain amount of visual styling that's written into the screenplay of the film, clearly, because how else are you going to mm. convey these insane concepts or whatever? But it is so grey, even from the very first scene where you're like straight with this like Charlie Kaufman-esque protagonist, the struggling artist in this like nasty looking apartment, horribly lit. But everywhere is horribly lit. I guess it is does play place in like nasty offices, the street and I think it's apartments. hilarious, man. That first scene um, or like maybe the second scene, he's like on the street doing like that. Uh, Eloise and Avalon. And they're just like, like, like dry yeah, humping. Like gyrating like through the wall. And it's like, <laughs> there's like a CD playing this like romance poem or whatever. And then this kid's watching it. And then her dad clocks after like a minute or whatever. And he's like, you piece of shit. And then so, immediately oh, so she's classic. like, did you get beat up again? Yeah. Like, but he, you know, he's like a uncompromising artist or whatever. He's not gonna, he's not gonna give it up because he believes himself to be the greatest puppeteer in the world or whatever. Yeah. It's such a weird thing because they sort of like, he... Despite the fact that no one listens to his amateur film podcast. <laughs> 
he capitalizes on his discovery of this portal into Malkovich's brain. They that becomes their business. Yeah. Um, but two hundred dollars a pop. But, but then after that, <laughs> they recapitulate the puppet fascination. You know the importance of puppetry yeah. where like Malkovich you know they use Malkovich's platform to he know, learns how to puppeteer puppeteering yeah. in like the public imagination he learns to <laughs> ventriloquize Malkovich and then he makes John Malkovich become the greatest puppeteer in the world because he already has cultural capital yeah yeah so he can like market the Malkovich method or whatever yeah um. <laughs> but he's just the John Cusack all the skills he has yeah, like yeah. when you see John Cusack in his studio with the puppets it's like beautiful sequences he's yeah, so good at puppeteering yeah like. yeah yeah and um, this is something in Ankind as well like well it's actually like stop motion but like that idea of like figures and like representation like controlling these like narratives like objects feel like it's all part of like Kaufman's like conceptualization of like art and like the synecdoche or whatever yeah yeah he keeps on returning to the same motifs or whatever maybe there's a four-hour version of synecdoche in New York where it all becomes a puppet show or whatever oh my in God. the original <laughs> script you know but yeah it is a really good movie like it's on Netflix folks hey on Netflix um easy to watch I know a lot of people have been watching it recently just because it's, it's on there. the wave yeah yeah for sure for sure. It's a mainstream... It was so successful, you know, like a smash or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Classic poster. Yeah. Classic title. Yeah. There was a... The producers, though, they were like, can't it just be being Tom Cruise yeah. or something? <laughs> but it doesn't sound as jokes. I mean, it probably would have been hilarious, but... I, I loved it on the rewatch. I think it's... One, one thing that's worth noting is um, its representation of gender relations and, like... Uh, again another recurring thing throughout Coffin's work this idea of like I guess it's like a sort of uh, dysmorphia or like mm -hmm. d I don't know there are so many dis again in Ankine there's like a bit where the character's like thinking about all these like permutations of that word um, I think that is something that is in his work as well mm -hmm. throughout and in being John Malkovich Catherine Keene has is that her name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great actress. Great yeah, performer. her character and Cameron Diaz's character that strike up a romance that can only be done when she's in John Malkovich's body mm -hmm. and all these, like, questions of, like, the body and the mind and, like, how they relate to other things. I feel like I'm not articulating this very well, that's, but... That's okay, um, man. Yeah. You guys know what we're talking about. Area. Yeah. The, the eggness. <laughs> but it is, yeah, Cameron Diaz's character is so interesting in that way, though. And then at the end, well, just watch it. Like, it can, it continues, like, this idea of, like, being stuck in someone else's head and that, like, gender displacement or, like, reversal and all these things. This film has one of the great endings, I think, actually. The last scene is just fabulous, you know. I mean, Kafka never wrote a... An ending. An ending that's that... <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. But he never wrote a moment of, like just like unbelievable irony yeah yeah as perfect as the ending of being john malkovich yeah it's masterful and so early literally the first feature film um and it's really he continues as we go on adaptation um i guess we should talk about now is like one of the most well we're going to talk about a lot of meta films today i guess but adaptation sees nick cage play charlie kaufman and his fictionalised brother, Donald Coffin, 
Um, who also has a screenwriting credit. On <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to adapt Susan Orlean's uh, The Orchid Thief, this like ponderous bestseller. Like, like bestseller. <laughs> Airport uh, nonfiction. And like he can't, ma- he can't do it. And it like sort of, I guess, tries to piece together that experience through like, no, extremely ironic, hilarious. It's such an audacious film. And I was really interested as soon as I finished watching it. This is my fourth or fifth watch, but like, <laughs> just to read about how Susan Orlean felt about this. I mean, she is just like a New Yorker writer. She lives a very comfortable life in the first two thirds of this movie. But <laughs> it's a total travesty of an adaptation in mm. the traditional sense. When you think of like uh, disclaimers in fictional works where it's like, oh, you know, any representations of any like names or it's just a big coincidence like or like you know not intentional not real this interacts with like a reality fantasy in like the most hilarious way it happens it happens before your very eyes there's loads of sequences that take place on the set of being john malkovich where (laughs) he's just been landed with this deal by like an agent to adapt this like bestseller all about flowers but he's really struggling to write it and like every struggle, every like issue that he has with the act of adaptation you see played before your very eyes. The making of documentary of this film would be incredibly boring because you're literally seeing it played out mm. with this imaginary character. The way that the film takes on the ideas of like writing scripts for Hollywood and like form in like Hollywood cinema, even though he'd literally already mastered it making being John Malkovich or whatever. But he's, he grapples with so much, including like the Robert Robert McKee's concept of storytelling. Um, it's kind of a really aggressive film against his theories. But there's different ways because Donald Kaufman, the, the, his like brother who writes the, the script for the worst sounding film of all time, although the film Identity did come out a couple of years later, which has a very simple, which was a huge financial success as well also star John Cusack but um yeah like all the problems of writing a script are like what the film is about mm. and it's such an arresting film to go along with or whatever it never like for sure. sags <laughs> for sure I guess that's why ironic is the first word that comes to mind because like it deals with like you know we know I guess going into it that like the main character is a fictionalized version of the screenwriter who is like very successful but he can't <laughs> but that's the thing I loved about it the most, almost, I think, was the portrait of, like, depression and, like, self-hatred, where, like, some mm. of those sequences rang so true. Yeah. I guess that, Personally. like, having, having the, like, dual, the, like, split personality embodied mm-hmm. by two versions of the same person is, yeah. like, you know, a very useful way of, like, verbalising all these tensions. And they do that in such a straight way through, like, the performance of his, like, more arrogant, like, successful brother who does utilise, like, the film writing like cheat code of like yeah. having like a you know like action-packed ending as well as like um the like charlie kaufman character is like so insecure and like it's like an extremely pathetic performance for you know? sure he is uh, yeah yeah but it still rings true or whatever you know because he is trying to be principled Standbys, he's, you know, he's obviously like an extremely pretentious person, as like mm. most of his protagonists are, mm. and as Charlie Kaufman seemingly is himself. But that's yeah. okay, man. You know, 
just just own it he, he did own it he owned it in this film better than i've ever seen anyone own it before sorry to quote shan again yeah. but at the beginning before we started watching it she was like really not down because she was gonna be like really self-indulgent but like by the end she was like yeah this coffin guy's really fucking beating the shit out of himself yeah, yeah. like it's successful in like exploring the self without being it is self-indulgent but yeah, but he went to battle with himself. I yeah. literally have no problem with the sort of self-indulgent element of this film specifically. No, I think it's hilarious. He, he goes to war with himself and, you know, he comes out with an incredible film, like, as well as going to war with, like, this concept of storytelling. I mean, a lot of people seem to interpret it, which I think is totally false, by the way, that, like, oh, he needed Donald's input to, like, make it into a proper film and give adaptation the eaten by a crocodile ending that it needs to make it like an entertaining Hollywood film. But I mean, the film is entertaining from the very start, I think. Like yeah, every sure. scene is so, so jokes and so just like... The invented reality at the end though that is like gunslinging and crocodile munching, yeah. that is still hilarious. <laughs> like, yeah, it's still, like it's still good. Like, um, I don't think, you know... It's not what... I guess it's more funny because, like, the film is, like, so railing against the necessity of having something like that happen. Yeah. And it does happen. But it also makes sense because they are in a swamp. And the whole time they're in the swamp, you're thinking, oh, that's a bit ropey. Where are the um, crocodiles? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But also, like, <laughs> it's a film where um, the two key things about, like, McKee, that his, his, his limiting things are, like, you can't have a deus ex machina and you can't have a voiceover this is the only charlie kaufman film with voiceover with voiceover narration it's done by nicholas cage who's such a good voice to listen to and his like voice acting in this film is fantastic and that it ends with him driving off into the sunset as you watch like a beautifully like beautifully done Nice ones fight joins for this one. The time lapse of like the flowers growing. So he could just make a film about flowers and he could have a voiceover and a Deus Ex Machina and it's still a dope film. Like it's an extremely dope film. Yeah, I, I love I loved it. I loved it. It was it was saying the second time. I think I literally saw it in the cinema a long time ago and I watched it again, like in the run up to doing this. And yeah, it holds up so well. I mean, we've lauded Nick Cage's performance in this. Again, I'd reiterate he's fantastic and uh, we watched this Ford film like a while ago. Uh, the whole town's talking. Dual yeah, come on, man. dual performance. <laughs> um, Ed- Edward G. Robinson like playing like both like a crook and a bank clerk. Um, very different performances. Uh, this does it so well, but also we haven't even spoken about Meryl Streep and is it Chris Cooper? and Chris Chris Cooper won the Oscar. Sorry to be Greg Tarkington like Oscar pick, but. Charlie Kaufman films be winning Oscars. Yeah, the these performances are, are just truly classic. He is amazing as this like very erudite, loquacious. I guess he's a like, bit Joe like, Exotic. He's a bit like yeah, pornographer yeah. king, yeah. <laughs> uh, or like Homer Simpson almost. Such and, a hilarious character. And Meryl yeah. and Meryl Streep's great in it as the you know seasonally in the you know the New Yorker <laughs> it really for, for this side of the story and you do get about half an hour like until these two like worlds meet in a really interesting and still metafictional way but yeah. not not in the same sense really it's not as like experimental in that sense with storytelling because they are just like actual parallel stories going on in both the real world but obviously that collapses but the film does really interrogate the journalistic process and like ethics in journalism and like the 
subject object like you know the writer subject relationship in a really concrete way that you don't get in many like actual history films or like... yeah definitely man and they do it in on multiple levels because it's about susan orleans you know relationship with oh, i can't remember the fucking character's name laroche laroche the like orchid poacher and kaufman's relationship with her there's a point where um he accidentally bumps into the agent and she's like oh susan's here Mm. Oh, stay, sit down. And he's like, oh, no, I can't. Like, I, I've already started writing. <laughs> yeah, it would interrupt the process. It would be dishonest to meet her because I've already started writing it or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, there's that sequence in the elevator where they are standing and he can't bring himself to speak to her. She obviously has no idea who she is. And then, like, she's trying to murder him, like, half an hour later. In like, there's this, like, you want to talk about, like, absences or, like, gaps, and that's what he's trying to fill in. And the stuff that is, like, absolutely not an adaptation of the orchid thief should have read it for the podcast but i didn't but i'm sure this stuff about this like green drug and this like murder plot and all of the like affairs she has like are things that she couldn't put in her own book it's kind of imagined you know whereas yeah i mean i think it's like 100 percent imagined yeah yeah, really. yeah 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 but like but i mean it's believable at the same time but but that's the radical act of adaptation in this film yeah. or whatever it's like trying to complete that story for a book that doesn't really have much story yeah, because he goes to this writing seminar. He finally, like, sells out or goes to the seminar and he's... The voiceover's like, you're a sellout. Like, you're a fucking failure. And then afterwards, he's, like, begging the uh, Brian Cox's character to, like, help him with this adaptation. He's reading the end of the book and he's like, well, where's the fucking ending? Like, uh, you know, like, so... <laughs> I don't know, it interrogates, like... The act of adaptation in the most strokes way, I think. It's as artificial as any of Kaufman's other films. But also his truest film or his like realist film or whatever. But even just for having that voice in your head that's telling you you're a disgrace like all day long or whatever. I've never seen that portrayed like quite as well. Yeah. And it's really aggressive in this film and I suppose true to life. Yeah, it doesn't feel <laughs> exploitative of like depressed viewers or whatever. It just feels mad real to be honest. Yeah. I think this film will also feel mad real to uh I was going to say chronic masturbators. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> masturbation, I guess, plays a pretty key uh, structuring device in this film where uh, all uh, Kaufman's interactions with women are sort of punctuated by these fantasy sequences um, that devolve into him, like, jacking off in, like, a dimly lit motel room. He's got the... Very he's got depressing fare. He's got the, like, peep show bit where he's, like, looking at the book jacket of the orchid thief, just, like, looking at this picture of Susan. <laughs> yeah. Susan Orlean, like, this is a crazy adaptation of the orchid yeah. thief, guys. If yeah. You, if you have... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, even more so than Human Nature and Eternal Sunshine, this had the best wanking sequences in any of Kaufman's films, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious and uh, unremitting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's adaptation. <laughs> Honestly, like, if you haven't seen it, check it out. If you liked I'm Thinking of Ending Things and you want another one, I guess. Adaptation is definitely up there in the recce, isn't it? I would say it's critic-proof. I, I think any problem with this film that you could have, you're supposed to have with it. And yeah. like he second guesses you. And that's... It's not just okay. I think that's fucking brilliant, to yeah. be honest. I have no complaints about adaptation whatsoever i thought it was really well directed as well by spike Jones, to be honest mm. like it does have a different palette and a vibe 
in general to being John Malkovich. It's his uh, least visually, con- apart from the two Nick Cages, which I guess is a huge conceit, but otherwise it's his least conceited script. It relies, it doesn't really rely on visuals that much, but it's, the visuals are used so well. Yeah. And, you know, it has that Terrence Malick, you know, birth of the universe style sequence or whatever. Yeah, it's a really cool sequence. All um, of this is okay. <laughs> it works. Again, just to go back to the bit, like, the bits on the set for being John Malkovich with, like, all the fake Malkoviches and, like, Kaufman, like, lurking in the corner. But I just love how it, like, frames this story within that, like, cinematic universe, you know? (laughs) Outrageous film. Having spoken about Charlie Kaufman's collaboration with two of the, you know, probably most popular early, like, turn-of-the-century filmmakers, Michel Gondry and Spike Jones, or at least for, like... I think it's, you know, it's obviously worth talking about them as an artist in his own right, Mm. um, who's mounted lots of, you know, productions on his own. Like, uh, his filmography is, like, there are quite a lot of gaps in terms of the years. Like, these projects, obviously, are in development for a long time. Um, in two, I think it was 2005, so after Eternal Sunshine, he did like a sort of double bill stage production with the Coen brothers. His was called, what was it? Hope Hope Leaves the Theatre. You can listen to a sound recording of that. I think, he, did he do it with Carter Burwell? Yes. Um, it's liked on the Film Grades SoundCloud yeah. listeners, so you can uh, get linked to it straight after listening to it. <laughs> also listen to Evett's uh, Guided by Voices Valerie Shakes. It's so good. Um, <laughs> but Thank you, thank uh, you. This was like a... Pff, I found it sort of unlistenable to a certain extent. It was interesting, though. Obviously very, like, soundtrack, like, loose jazz, like, soundtracking. I love uh, the music. Yeah, it was cool. But, like, it was very, like, sort of noisy. It's like some sort of participatory thing. Yeah, it has, can- uh, it has literal canned laughter. Yeah, it was really what? strange. I guess that's the sound of the audience literally laughing. This has... Yes, it was a strange experience to, like, listen to it. Because it's not listening to it as, like, a radio play like a audio version of it it's like literally listening to like a it's a live table read yeah, or whatever yeah, i guess but it's it's pretty well acted hope davis is fantastic i mean the plot as far as i could discern was about her leaving her phone in the theater that it's being performed in and it's also about the late writer charlie kaufman and they're talking about how like after he he killed himself basically after eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and like hope leaves the theater is his last script or whatever and you're listening to it i found it pretty annoying to be honest and not that pleasurable but the last five minutes where there's like a review by peter dinklage's character of charlie kaufman's writing was pretty jokes great i guess i need to skip forward to that bit um i just found it like to i just couldn't listen to it basically i I think anomalisa was um staged as well it was is that right with the cast yeah with with exactly the same cast jennifer jason lee david thulis and tom noonan um because the coen brothers pulled out basically of um that yeah they're part of the double bill um they're too busy making the lady killers David Thewlis has been in a few of these uh, Charlie Coffin films. He's in, I'm thinking of anything, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, he's uh, the main guy in a, or the main voice in Anomalisa. I recently watched Naked, so tangential, but I just want to talk about it. Uh, Did you love it? Uh, yeah, I loved it. It was so good. Talk about turn century shit. This is some real, like, eschatology, like, the end of the world. Like, um, And, yeah, David Thewlis just plays, like, a northern guy who's, like come down to London to just like 
He plays the nasty, terrorized like, a, a really nasty character, and it's a sensational performance and an amazing film. I love it. I think we're going to have to do a full uh, Lee Liester at some point. <laughs> but I also recently watched Abigail's Party. It's so good. But yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it again. Uh, uh, we'll do it another time. <laughs> I love Naked for how the. I mean, this is a very talked about film these days, especially I feel like it's just gone up and up in stature, even though it was mad popular at the start when it came out. But the parallels between Thulis's character and this like scummy landlord in Speedo's character, they're both like demonstrating like horrible destructive elements of like male psychology. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. In a Marxist framework. You know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, it very much um, frames itself within the time in which it was written. Like his, um, Dawson in 1993. I guess it's like watching A Fish Called Wander or some sure. shit when it's like, wow, this landscape is like completely changed. There are bits where they're like under the arches uh, somewhere. Um, like, I guess, you you know, there's no real hint towards where it is, but like it's full of like hobos or whatever. And it's like, this is not, they're all cafes now. Like those things. That's where Dominic Cummings lives. They're all, yeah. Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> what do you mean? Like the Beauvoir estate or whatever, which is where most of it is like filmed and shot. Fascinating film. Anyway, sorry. So <laughs> really tangential. We'll talk about Mike Lee another time. But um, yeah, just on a David Thewlis like uh, celebration or whatever, had to give it a mention. Sorry. The point is though, Kaufman as well as working with Gondry and Jones has gone on to like make a number of films as writer-director, the first of which was Synecdoche, New York in 2008. As I said, I saw it in the cinema a while ago, and it like, as I was leaving, someone, I heard someone be like, oh, what a load of shit. <laughs> which as I said, is, people have said this is the worst film ever made. I think yeah, Rex I, Reed said that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know who that is. He's <laughs> like the 40-year New York Times film critic or something. No tape. Um, I guess it... Uh, I don't know, hit too close to the bone? I don't know. Um, it's. I think it's genius. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a theatre director, like a New York creative who wins a MacArthur grant, basically giving him the opportunity to basically mount anything he wants. Seemingly as a has an unlimited budget. Yeah, and there's a line later where they're like, oh, we have budgetary concerns. <laughs> it's like, you've built... New York in a fucking warehouse. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I mean, talk about meta films. This is a film where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character goes through like a crazy journey, basically. They all age, like it covers like decades. Yeah. By the end, they're all on walking sticks. But in, yeah, his play that he puts on, which basically becomes, it's like the Dow Project or the Commune, but that, right. that takes... Was- takes place over decades. You were talking about the Dow Project to me the other day. Yeah, you want so... to talk a bit more about the Dow Project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just basically um, these experiences, productions where huge ensemble casts are basically put in a warehouse and they build a set. For Dow, it's a Russian uh, project about, you know, making these films about, like, the Soviet period, basically. And all these people, like, basically live their uh, Soviet experience. They're given rubles to spend in the canteen or whatever they get old newspapers and shit and then they make films like out of that right so next key new york is sort of and the commune one of my favorite films of all time is similarly about that where the paris commune of 1871 is recreated in honestly please everyone watch it it's on youtube I'm going to say Wagon Master, you guys should watch that shit <laughs> if you want. Yeah. But I guess a similar approach once again. Yeah. There's one other astonishing piece of performance art that I believe you wanted to bring. Well, yeah, I think because for Caden Cotard, right, he's trying to 
I don't even know if this is his real intention because I think he's just trying to communicate his direct lived truth and lived experience. Yeah. That's the fatal mistake he makes in trying to write this play that he doesn't have a name yeah, for. Yeah, because it's impossible because it's just it's... life continues happening. So like always adjusting the performance and like reliving it. But if he just said it in one bar where smoking is allowed, you know, like if he just kept the location <laughs> tight and not had this like self-fulfilling like expansion thing, I'm talking about Nathan for you series two episode five <laughs> smokers allowed everyone should watch it it's an absolute work of genius I think it's astonishing and it hits me every time there honestly it's 21 minutes or whatever of straight gold and yeah. you know it's the best episode of Nathan for you for sure yeah I think it's the best TV episode of all time sure I wouldn't um, I wouldn't disagree with you man. I think it's so I think, the, yeah, it just attempts to penetrate the psyche of those involved in these sorts of projects in the same way that Synecdoche does. And these kinds of projects do exist, you know. There are massive, like, warehouse theatre pieces in New York. Like, I feel like a lot of this New York, like, theatre and art is like a straight money laundering operation. <laughs> yeah. This guy has a MacArthur Genius Grant. But basically, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that the Nathan Few episode is just about a bar and it's all determined by the location or whatever, it can't go beyond that. Even though, you know, the bit when he tells the barmaid that, oh, he's actually casting actors to, like, play the real people. Pretty hard to describe, I think, on a podcast this episode, but please watch it. If you haven't seen Synecdoche, New York, watch it first. If you have, like, watch it because it's, like, a perfect parallel. But, you know, Caden Cotard ages, like, 40 years and, like, his whole life, like, everything around him is destroyed. But Nathan, like, completes the operation in, like, five days or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. And job done. Where's his gene? Where's his Nobel Prize? <laughs> yeah. God, it really is just the gold standard that. Um, just in so, uh, for Synecdoche, New York, as well as having this, like, crazy plot line about, um, about the production, his life story is just devastatingly horrible um and you know it's mad i don't know what to say about it i don't want to give it i don't want to like describe the plot but like it's it's mental whereas adaptation was one of like the realest films about like depression this is one of the most depressing films i've ever seen i think it's an xq new york and on second watch like recently was hit so hard but just made me feel so i mean the visually again like john malkovich it's so muted and turned down and like you just keep on returning to the same locations as people are just like older and more worn down yeah. and nasty it is about aging and also this character like has a bunch of fucked up relationships um this film has an amazing supporting cast just that conceit where like the main characters all have like doubles as it goes and then doubles of doubles or like well not exactly but it sort of has that effect it's just so such a good way of exploring the psychologies of these characters and their like deterioration of their relationships and their relation to the world like when he starts sleeping with the, the emily watson character who plays the fake sec like the, the fake actress secretary. version of yeah. the samantha morton secretary role or when he swaps with the diane weist character who is like cast as the, the playwright um, and they just swap lives. I don't know. It's all this kind of stuff. The, the relationship with his daughter, this was the thing that I, or the non-relationship with his daughter. That, I mean, that's what I was referring to <clears throat> when I was like, I, can't, I just don't know how to describe it because it's just such a strange term where basically his family becomes estranged, moves to Berlin, and, you know, the alienation just increases from there. Pretty real so, portrayal yeah. of moving to Berlin from what I understand <laughs> it to be, you know, you just get subsumed into this, like, depravity, whether you're Iggy Pop or, like... <laughs> 
it, that I mean that's one of the rawest parts of the film where he has this like reunion with his daughter Jennifer Jason Lee's character who's like accent changes she's fantastic as just like sort of like Catherine Keener as his like wife's like best friend or whatever and then the nasty turn that their relationship has extremely raw extremely like peak yeah just like literally the most devastating scenario imaginable yeah. imaginable i guess like the deathbed like refusal for forgiveness or whatever like it's actually it's actually so raw it's, so, really it's a truly it's a truly bleak film and that only happens halfway through the film and then it gets so much it still goes downhill from there you know uh director of photography uh frederick elms who did a bunch of lynch films jarmish films Oof, um i feel did, like did blue velvet huh yeah that's mad isn't it? jeez um, very very colourful film. <laughs> yeah, again, the palette of this is like so muted, like undersaturated or oversaturated. Undersaturated. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just like aggressive, aggressively bleak throughout. But it's still a pretty staggering work of art. I think it's worth, it bears comparison to Jacques Tati's Playtime. Um, and also to a lesser extent, Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, which took place on like a massive, the biggest set in New York ever. But And Playtime like is a real synthesis of modern life and all took place on these sets, but like sets that look outdoors, even though the sky is part of the set and the, the architecture. Both these, like Jacques Tati, like Playtime like ruined his life. I think is one of the best films ever made. Total masterpiece. Everyone should see it. I watch it twice a year and i love it even more every time as i'm sure lots of people are like with synecdoche new york but both of these films like well it didn't just dis- nothing's destroyed woody allen's life but, um, god i can only imagine having an extremely occasional relationship with synecdoche new york because it's just a yeah it's not like say entangle you can't just run it up on on any day you want um but playtime, you know, ruined Jack Tati's life or whatever. Yeah, totally. Also, what do you mean? He just lost loads of money. Like, you know, he had, he had like a blank check until everyone was like, all right, come on now, you're taking the piss or whatever. This is ridiculous. By the end of Synecdoche, New York, all of New York is part of this set. Yeah. I would really recommend Roger Ebert's review where he likens it to Ulysses and... Um, yeah, he really rated it, didn't he? He really, really rated it. And he said it's a film about everyone you know it's not just about Caden Cotard or like directors and like because I think that's you know all of Charlie Kaufman's films have like super like put upon su- like protagonists who suffer for their art or their like work mm. but I guess it depends on how you feel Charlie Kaufman feels about the film because it doesn't really feel like a noble undertaking to me it's a totally pointless and thankless task that doesn't succeed in the way that like being yeah. John Malkovich like doesn't sat- doesn't give anyone any pleasure to be a part of this thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really again to use the word bleak again to invoke the idea of the Sisyphean struggle. It doesn't have a happy ending. Synecdoche, New York. Listeners, if you're thinking of mounting a production that tries to synthesize all life and truth into the theatre stage, make a film instead because theatre is. <laughs> stupid and watching actors act is the least the least pleasurable part yeah. of watching art i think it satirizes it in a very jokes way and that's the thing all these films are funny as well like i feel like we've yeah, only yeah. used like really depressing adjectives to describe this film but like i mean it's hilarious because it's so ridiculous and because like the depression becomes it's like depression ad 
absurdum or whatever, like where it just becomes like, you can't help but laugh even as like the most savage things are happening. Um, because it's like, if you're not, what are you doing? Gouging your eyes out. Like it's, that is very true. But you don't see Hoffman in one of his performances. You don't see him smile or laugh or have a single moment of like pleasure in this movie, including in like the numerous romantic sequences or whatever. It's just peak. Yeah, just like uh, hypochondria, like health anxiety, and that's just literally the tip of the iceberg. Like, <laughs> good ass film. <laughs> I do love the little person tune that um, Kaufman wrote the lyrics for, um, and John Bryan wrote the music for. Um, covered by the homie Matt Maltese on his latest EP, which is a pretty cool way to start a record. I feel. Yeah, that's a a cool selection. Yeah, be sure. part of the meta world. <laughs> Carrying on into the second film by Charlie Kaufman, who didn't, you know, didn't manage to get much completed. He did do Kung Fu Panda 2 between Sinecki New York and Anomalisa, but he doesn't really consider this part of his directorial oeuvre. Um, I guess it is largely directed and the visuals are largely determined by uh, Duke Johnson, who made the animated episode of Community. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's the only thing I clocked when I was looking for his film. This, this is a Starburns Industries production. It like, is. What is that? Like the, the production company that makes Community or, you know. What, is that actually? Yeah. yeah. Starburns. <laughs> long time. Oh, the character with yeah, the yeah, stars. Yeah. yeah. Shit. Long, long, wow, long yeah. time ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this came out seven years after Sonetki, New York. So in 2015, um, as you said, it's animated. We saw it together in the cinema at a Barbican. I seem to Young remember. Young Barbican. Um, Five pounds. Those were the days. None of our cohort really responded that well to it, I seem to remember. I was a bit disappointed by it. I would be if I was to watch it tomorrow, I'm sure. But it has its genesis in a radio play, and the voice acting is the best thing about this film, I think. You know, David Thewlis' character, everyone sounds like Tom Noonan to him until he meets someone special who has the voice of Jennifer Jason Lee. That's an awesome conceit. Yeah. And it works really well in the film. It takes your breath away in that moment when you hear someone else's voice after you've heard this voice for a pretty oppressive 40 minutes. Yeah, and I would say that, look, it's a stop-motion film and it is extremely impressive what they've achieved. I think whenever I watch stop-motion, I'm always blown away, whether it's Aardman or, you know, indie shit, you know, any sort of animation I always find impressive because you just know how labour-intensive this the, is. The um, um, fell in love with a girl, Michelle Gondry, yeah, the Lego Lego stop motion Incredible. is wonderful. Um, but yeah, this film just didn't... It's very like midlife crisis-y in a way that I feel that other films... I mean, I mean, they are, but they're more like fantastical maybe or more co- more complicated in, in terms of like the discourses it incorporates. I should have rewatched it for this. This is just miserable though. I guess it's cool to have a, you know, an animation film that's exclusively aimed at like middle-aged people or whatever. Yeah, fans of Team America. Sure. Um, f- you know, which has the famous puppet sex sequence. I remember this film having a um 
what's that uh, one in Venice? What's it called? Don't look Don't now. Look now. Um, like super extendo, like yeah. sex scene it's between like these minutes. puppets, and it's just like, yeah, okay, you've like you know broken the the boundaries or whatever, that one's and now it's like still it. happening. It's yeah. <laughs> still happening. It doesn't have uh, much editing in it though, which is interesting, I guess, which is way more sort of like informed by pornography i guess or whatever as opposed to like glam top gun style like yeah for sure uh windswept sex scene or whatever with loud music blaring this is extremely realistic yeah i mean it's meant to be like a moment of intimacy to which the viewer is privy but i mean yeah i basically this film just didn't really click maybe in like maybe i'm like oh we'll watch it and be like yeah, so good, but I don't. I don't feel that's gonna happen necessarily. Who knows? though? maybe it is another masterpiece. Another masterpiece. <laughs> People rated it when it came out for the most part, I think. But I think I, I would have rather heard it with Hope Leaves the Theater as this sort of like radio play. It would have been cool. It doesn't need the puppetry, even though the puppetry is obviously impressive. But again, you know, it's still all these things that Kaufman is really interested in from from the start of his career. Yeah, I mean, thematically, it's um, very in line with the rest of his body of work. But yeah, just ironically, because you always, I, I think of animation like very like ma- having like a certain magic to it. I just don't have like sort of soft spot for this film at all, really. And there's a couple of other projects like uh, How and Why and um, Depressed Roomies that you can read the scripts to these are pilot tv shows or whatever he also worked on the script to add astra between uh this i assume he's i assume he wrote the natasha leon sequence in that film uh, yeah which i loved but yeah ad astra great movie mm. philosophically rich as well in a kaufman-esque yeah. manner but that brings us to i'm thinking of ending things his adaptation of ian reed's high concept horror novella it just came out it's on netflix it's got taken us a while to get around to it but for me, as part of the Kaufman canon, it's like very, very solid in terms of like bringing all his interests into this uh, still pretty interesting and original story. But it's a true Kaufman film with a bunch of really interesting shit in it. Sam, what did you think of this film? Yeah, I actually had sort of mixed feelings about it. I suppose my main critique is that I just didn't feel like it was like as dark as I expected it was going to be which is a weird thing to say because when I reflect on it now I think of it as like very macabre and disturbing Uh, but when I was watching it there are so many strategies in it to make you like spooked or whatever or jarred none more so than the 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 aging happening before your eyes even in a scarier way than Synecdoche New York when you're hanging out with Tony Collette and David Thewlis, who play the parents of Jesse Plemons' character. Watching the trailer, it felt like it was going to be way more like Get Out or something. Some mm, sort of like for sure. scary, like anxiety-inducing, like meet the parents style horror show. But this is really not what the film's about at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a, cent- a sort of structural centerpiece. Yeah. Um, but a point to and from which the story uh, or the narrative... Mm-hmm. Uh, like sort of ravels or unravels um it's a really interesting film you checked out the source material how did you think it compared i prefer the film to the source material but they're really trying to do different things i think the source material was a horror exercise with really again really jarring 
breaks you have like a really long chapter followed by like a short chapter of just like horror dialogue that's completely decontextualized and i would say like it's worth mentioning that Kaufman was like really searching for a project and like he couldn't really find anything that he wanted to adapt and then he just read this like interesting sort of indie like thing that he was like oh this is pretty cool like i think i could do something with this or whatever and he says like it's a lot easier for him to adapt things these days probably not because of adaptation i'm sure like people are very <laughs> afraid of that happening again i mean you can't make like any of these studios or final well, well and netflix you know hail netflix they're they've got very open minds i think yeah but this is one of the most audacious netflix films and the most like radical i would say I haven't seen Cuties, but, you know, don't really but, <laughs> I mean, as far as you can tell, like, that's not a subversive film in the slightest. Um, but it's just listed like a reactionary response. This is, this is an extremely subversive film, despite also being, compared to the other two, filled with visual pleasure, stylization, symmetrical frame. It's got great performances, like, Jesse Buckley is great. Yeah, I guess on both of those points, I would agree. Um, the... Director of photography was uh, Wika Shao, who worked with Pavel Pavlovsky on like Ida, which is one of my favorite films. Mm. And Cold War, yeah, loved yeah. it. Like a vet, like an aesthetic, like practitioner, like those films, like all about the light. This film is, you know, it does a lot <laughs> in terms of the visuals. Um, there is so much interesting camera work as well in terms of like fourth wall breaking. There are some great shots of like, there's like some very fleeting ones of like Jesse Buckley's character, like looking over her shoulder out of the mm. back window of the car. I, I thought that sort of stuff was really cool. Yeah, the um, suggestion of horror yeah, is yeah. worth mentioning. And this has been a big stumbling block. So I would say like you had kind of mixed feelings about the film, but it feels like it's had a very, very polarized reaction on like letterbox and twitter and these kinds of things between people absolutely loving it hello and people like really 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 hating it or like people who just you know google ending explained like straight, yeah. <laughs> straight after they watch the yeah film. yeah okay uh, well i mean let's talk about the ending uh the last i guess last third the last act as yeah. i suppose you should say is um, a crazy sort of breakdown of form um, as like this sort of narrative construct that is the whole story um, like sort of deteriorates and it breaks down into like ballet and um, like these like other forms of like sort of well, I guess it's mainly dance, actually, but just, like, different forms of interpretation. And it's like the Red Shoes, I guess, you know, they're trying to tell the whole story in, like, through a totally different medium to, like, the story you've seen, you know, when they're, like, pulling out the red handkerchiefs or whatever. Yeah, just such, like, an astonishing, like, aesthetic break where it just becomes, like, a different form. Um, I thought that was really amazing, actually. There's two real points of comparison I'd like to bring in at this point. Mm. One is David Lynch's Lost Highway for kind of obvious reasons. I mean, much like I'm thinking of anything that's like not a lot of people's favorite David Lynch mm. film. And it's pretty problematic, I think, both in terms of story, like in terms of there's like huge problems, like plot holes and like flaws with the storytelling in maybe a way that people can't get on board with in the way that they can with Mulholland Drive, which has an extremely similar structure. We're going back to like film grays one, like in fabric, you know, this is, is this kind of thing. But Lost Highway is about the sort of ideation of the characters, the dreams of the characters and like getting to live out uh, a sort of idealized life and then becoming aware of it. Fantastic film, grows in relevance every, yeah, every fuck, year. I need to watch it, man. You should really yeah. watch it, I think. Um, if you like this, if you liked I'm Thinking of Any Things, you should definitely check out Lost Highway because they felt very comparable to me. Also, there's that David Foster Wallace at the, 
a thing I'd, what, I can't remember what it's called, a thing I'll never do again or something like that, which has the essay, it's quoted from in a scene in this film, but that features an essay about Foster Wallace visiting Lynch on the set of Lost Highway. Oh, no shit. Yeah. The other big point of comparison for me, or the thing that it really reminded me of was Fucked Up's third album, David Comes to Life. Right. Which has this like fucking awesome postmodernist like breakdown in the narrative. I mean, it's, this is like a Marxist story or whatever, but it's a concept album. It's got like a sort of workers romance, like union activism thing going on. But then the protagonist, David, like meets the author and like you've got pink eyes like singing in two different voices at each other as they're like having all these conversations. Um, but haven't seen it explored in film in a, such a cool way in this decade. I mean, it's kind of bait, straightforward, like Pirandello, whatever you want. But I thought this was awesome in this film. Um, I thought like David comes to life. It's like very rich in exploring like narrative structures and the character's awareness of being a character. Mm, I mean, that's, I guess, the sort of conceit of the film, really. Um, Like straight from the beginning when your like sort of spectatorship of the film is established, like in like a way that doesn't immediately relate to the story because it's like to do with like the imaginings of you know, someone else or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's a fucking... Yeah, it is dark. It's visually dark, for sure. There's a couple of driving sequences. This is, like, a lot of people's problem with the film is there's, like, two half-hour-long sequences of them two just talking and driving, which are, like, pretty dark. And, like, I was watching it on my iPad. I could barely see anything, but the dialogue really carried me through. Mm. I love um, I loved the poem that uh, Jesse Buckley's character has written where um, Jesse Plemons' character is like, oh, like, tell me a poem. Like, you got a new poem? Read it to me. She's, oh, I don't know. Like, maybe it's not the right time. No, come on, come on. Uh, and then it's like the most, like, savage poem, like, imaginable. Like, I thought that was an amazing delivery. I know, uh, a lo- you know, I guess it's all about the sort of shifting performances as well something you mentioned earlier and like the different sort of personas that these constructed characters develop as they go the bit where she's reciting a pauline kale review for example i know you like that bit god Uh, yeah (laughs) that's a crazy like sort of uh performance where she just embodies like a critical voice or whatever incredible moment not in the source material um yeah, Jesse Buckley was great in doing the Pauline Kael impersonation in that, much like uh, Susan Strasberg in The Other Side of the Wind, just doing straight her voice tone. She just gets it. I love A Woman Under the Influence. I watched it really recently. Oh, I need to watch that shit because um, there's a long chat about that. Yeah, but it's not a chat about what you necessarily think it was about, which is like, you know, misogyny in Cassavetes or whatever. It's more just like parring Jenna Rollins' performance. But that, the poem, David Foster Wallace... And the A Beautiful Mind DVD. These are all things that... <laughs> I didn't clock that. Nah, but the, <laughs> the, the speech at the... Spoiler alert, the speech that he gives at the very end of like the the greatest moment of his life, right? right. Of, is the speech from A Beautiful Mind, like his like Nobel Prize thing. So there's a sequence where... You, everyone's talking about this, but there's a sequence where you see his childhood bedroom. You get the shelfie. I love shelfies, you know, I love seeing, you know, like, just what's on your shelf. Like, oh, I see. <laughs> and, like, this guy's a fictional character whose, like, frame of reference has been determined. And that's, like, is so much of what they're discussing in the film. But it's kind of about how if you build a character out of the anxiety of influence or whatever, and their, like, frame of reference 
they're so hollow and you feel that in the film all the time when they're just talking about other shit they have nothing else to talk about in the book there's like a couple of like interesting like non-stories or whatever where they start telling a story but they don't know how to finish the story or whatever because the author is like writing it as it's going right but this is so fascinating i think for that. i guess i use like musicals for the same way of like sort of constructing like identities and like frames of reference and you know. I love Oklahoma. <laughs> and it's a real thing that like an old, like, because the, the janitor must be like 70, 80 years old. I guess he might be suffering from dementia, which would be another mm. element as to why mm. there's so much like breakdown and contradiction in the these long ass conversations that they have, which does feel familiar in a dementia sense or like an Alzheimer's mm. sense. Mm. One interpretation, but like Lost Highway, it's pretty open to interpretation, I think, in terms of there's a lot of questions. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of like the stru- the structural, the framing device, it's pretty unambiguous um, mm-hmm. as like a fantasy. So one uh, point of reference I wanted to bring, or like a comparison I wanted to bring in, is in Synecdoche, New York, when um, towards the end there's this like shift where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character basically starts like cleaning his ex-wife's like apartment and then they start like recreating that and then he like switches roles with the cleaner lady and this like i don't know i guess like the role of the janitor in these films is like i don't know <laughs> it's not great <laughs> but as like a sort of strata or it's a thankless task but i guess like synecdoche new york it's about having that having the capacity to tell a story within anyone or whatever mm. or this was like the story he was dying to tell for his whole life since he watched that animated pig the last 10 minutes of this film are fucking crazy by the way like so stick with it don't like really don't turn this film off like even if you're not interested in pauline kale and david foster wallace or whatever <laughs> like it's a fascinating film it's one of my favourite films of the year, for sure. Like, if not my favourite. Shame there wasn't the cinematic release, because it's a very engrossing film. It's a great Charlie Kaufman film, yeah. I would say. It's my favourite work that he's directed. It doesn't have any apes in it. It does have an animated pig. <laughs> yeah. um, and it definitely has a lot of neurosis. I'd like to shout out Jesse Flemons. I think he's a fantastic actor, you know. Yeah, I think everyone was great in this, but he brings a lot to it. A lot of, sort of, uh, interiority and, like, pent-up. <laughs> it's a very good performance um, not just because he's a character in search of an author and, or whatever yeah. <laughs> but as you know he still plays the role of like the Kaufman-esque protagonist even though I guess Jesse Buckley is the protagonist yeah. but the sort of male ego thing but be- all the ellipses and the lacunas in his uh, psychology are so interesting I think yeah such interestingly drawn characters and really amazingly performed as well. Uh, yeah, I guess that's... I'm thinking of ending things. I'm thinking of ending the podcast. <laughs> We've been talking about Charlie Kaufman for fucking ages. Yeah, um, I guess just... I'll say it one more time then. I think he's one of the goats, you know, yeah. of like modern filmmaking. I don't think you're wrong. Um, I've really loved the like week spent watching everything he worked on even confessions of a dangerous man (laughs) and human nature but like most of these films they're so awesome and as pieces of writing yeah who you can't you can't compare like no 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 singular voice uh we don't often do like sort of rankings or formal ratings in film grades but is there any particular films that you'd like to really shout out before we wrap up i'd probably have 
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as my number one. And I'd probably have Human Nature as my least favourite, but I guess Anomalisa would also be down there. Um, being John Malkovich would be kind of low for me. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm thinking of ending things would probably be number two. Well, there may, no, adaptation number two. And <laughs> I'm thinking of ending things number three. Great. How about yourself? Um, yeah, well, I think our discussion of Eternal Sunshine brought to bear how much we both love that film. Adaptation, I found super entertaining on rewatch. Synecdoche, New York, I found super depressing, but also, I think, essential viewing, really. Um, Being John Makovich was super fun as well. Human Nature, yeah, I guess I've got to agree, it's certainly the most trivial. Um, and similarly, another Lisa, uh, left no meaningful impression on me either. So Depressed roomies. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of jokes, but yeah. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah, yeah so I mean, is how yeah. and why. Like, it's bad. Yeah. This, um, like, being Charlie Kaufman website has a bunch of the scripts, so that's where you can read some of the early drafts um, as well, which is an interesting exercise. Antkind, available at all good bookstores? Not available on paperback yet. I'm reading an ebook because I'm not trying to carry around the fucking, you know, George R.R. R. Martin style hardback you can fucking kill someone with. Go to an airport and get it if you want to <laughs> take a flight. We'll be back very soon. We've got an episode with our good friend Louis Bennett about painters and painting in film. Painting in time. Painting in celluloid. So look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, that'll be great. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. You've been listening to Film Grace. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening.